Today's reading is from Isaiah 52, and it's verses 1 to 15. Awake, awake, Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust. Rise up. Sit enthroned, Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, daughter Zion, now a captive. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. At first my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately Assyria has oppressed them. And now, what do I have here, declares the Lord? For my people have been taken away from nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore, my people will know my name. They will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure, you who carry the articles of the Lord's house. But you will not leave in haste or go in flight. For the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who who appalled him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Thank you, Amy. Let's keep that um, passage open. Shall we pray as we look at this passage together? Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would show us how these words help us to prepare for Christmas. Amen. Great. Well, um, uh, today, uh, Christmas morning and on Sunday the 30th, we're going to be doing a little three-part series in uh, Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, um, very well-known chapters in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Today is talking about the promise of God's King, because we're looking forward, aren't we, to Christmas morning. Uh, Christmas morning, uh, Wellesley will be looking at the arrival of God's King, a great celebration. And then on the 30th, John Billet will be talking about the work of the King. So that's where we're going to be going um, over the next um, three times we gather here. But I'd like to begin this morning with um, an illustration. The thing about this illustration is I don't yet know what it's going to be, because you're going to come up with it. Um, But there's a criteria for those who want to help me with it. You need to... Tell me something that invokes passion in you, that stirs your heart, that moves you. That's the first criteria. Second criteria, associated with that, you need to come up with a message you want to convey. 
And the third thing is you need to tell me what the audience is that you want to hear this message, okay? So that's the three criteria. I'm going to ask a few of you in a minute to volunteer. So just to help you, here's the first one. This is a silly one, but just to help you understand. What am I passionate about? What moves me? Answer, McDonald's. What's the message I want to convey? Don't eat it. It's not food. And who do I want to hear this message? The whole world, okay? So while I just stick up this illustration on the, on the wall here, I'd love to hear from a couple of people. You can shout out and then I can repeat it. I've got here um, a blank board. Is someone going to volunteer and please tell me something that invokes passion in you? Anyone prepared to tell us? Are we the most unpassionate group of people we've ever seen? Come on, someone's got to be passionate here. Say what? Plastic waste. waste, Fantastic. So plastic waste invokes a passion in Peter. Plastic waste, good. Uh, What do you want to say about plastic waste? Reduce it. Good. Decrease it. And who do you want to hear this message? Whole world. Oh, whole world. Okay. Good. There's something that stirs Peter's passions he wants us to reduce it he wants the whole world to hear it let's have a couple more something you're passionate about got another board here Vera nature Vera is passionate about nature what do you want to tell us about nature ah so we've got to look down and look up or reduce it look up it's beautiful Who do you want to know that? Those who are down. Who? Those who are down. Who are down. Those who are down. Good. Um, fantastic. You're passionate that actually nature can speak to us when we're downcast and can encourage us, lift our spirits, to show us as a creator. I'm running out of wall space here. There we go. Hopefully that's not going to stay and not fall onto the candles. There we go. Last one. Let me give you this illustration. If God was to play this game this Christmas, if he was to come in here and he had something that he was passionate about, this is what he would say. What is God passionate about? He's passionate about people. And what does he want to say to every person he's made? He wants to say, I love you. And who does he want to hear that message? Well, absolutely everybody. And Isaiah 52, the verses that Amy read to us earlier, are really teaching us what's on the screen there and what I've just written up. It's a passage that really is speaking to God's people. It's speaking to us today, two days before Christmas. And it's wanting to shake us, as we've just sung. It's shouting out to us, wake up, wake up. God wants to say to you, to me, to every person who's not here this morning, you are infinitely precious to me, and I'm coming to rescue you. So the context of Isaiah 52 and 53, which we're going to be looking at over the next three times we gather here, uh, they come in in a wider portion of Isaiah, chapter 49 through to chapter 55. And the context here is exile. There's a kind of mystery going on in these chapters because the writer Isaiah gives a message from God to his people and he speaks about this mystery servant who's coming. And at this point we don't know who the servant is. 
But Isaiah is writing and speaking 700 years before the birth of Jesus. So 700 years before the very first Christmas. And the context is God's people are a mess. They're miles away from home. They've been taken captive by a foreign superpower. Do you see in our passage there? They're described as the captive daughters of Zion, verse 2. That's just describing God's people who have been captured and are not in God's city. Uh, Verse 4, notice Assyria, it's a foreign superpower that have captured God's people. They've taken them off into exile. Verse 4, Assyria has exiled them. And why has all this happened? Have a look at the second half of verse 5. All day long my name is blasphemed. No doubt blasphemed amongst the foreign rulers who have taken them captive, but also blasphemed amongst God's own people which is why they've been exiled in the first place. So here's God's people. They're in physical slavery, but that's really just a symptom of the fact that they're in spiritual slavery. They're physically enslaved because their hearts have been sold out to other gods. And it's in that context that God wants to speak through this prophet, this spokesperson called Isaiah, and he says, wake up, wake up. You're infinitely precious to me and I'm coming to rescue you. If you were brave enough to go down to Waitrose today, and even braver perhaps to go down tomorrow, do you get a sense that the people rushing into Waitrose to do their thing would even have half a thought about this? Wake up. You're infinitely precious to me and I'm coming to rescue you. Busy, busy in Waitrose, getting ready for, guess what, Christmas in two days. How many people who are busy, busy getting ready for Christmas in two days are thinking about this? But then notice verse 7, there's an amazing gear shift. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. It's a word that means rescue. Who say to Zion, again a reference to Jerusalem, the people of God, your God reigns. How beautiful are the feet of people who come and say your God reigns. This here is... A little picture of the gospel. Uh, If you're familiar with Mark chapter 1 verse 1, it says this. This is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel means good news. But there were lots of good newses going around at the time. And there would have been good newses, gospels going around in the time of Isaiah. See, a gospel is just a message that is proclaimed. And there would have been all sorts of Gospels coming back to God's people all the time throughout history. A Gospel would be a great message of a triumph. Maybe God's people's king has gone out into battle and there's been a great victory over a foreign superpower. And they come back and they herald a Gospel. Good news. The foreign king has been destroyed. It would be a bit like if you're a businessman or a businesswoman and you uh, went out and there was a great business acquisition, uh, acquisition and you sat down with another company. And uh, you gave them a price for buying them out. And they agreed and signed on the dotted line. You come back to your company and you say, good news. We've bought this other company. There's lots of gospels going around. And here we read of another gospel. But this gospel isn't business acquisition. This gospel is your God reigns. The gospel is speaking of a current uh, coming servant figure. And this great message is proclaimed to God's people whose heads are hung low, who are feeling discouraged, who are miles away from the city, which is God's city. God is very distant. They're under his judgment. They're feeling utterly helpless and hopeless. But notice what we read in verse 8. Here we hear a message. Listen. It's the same idea of wake up. Listen. 
Your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Here, Isaiah is looking back to Jerusalem, to God's people. And he's saying, guess what's happening in Jerusalem right now? Your watchmen lift up their eyes. What are watchmen for? Watchmen would stand on the outpost of the city. And what are they watching for? They're watching for an enemy. And they're watching for when the returning king comes back triumphant. But the watchmen in Jerusalem are not looking out for an enemy anymore because the enemy's come. Destroy Jerusalem. It's been razzed to the ground. And are the watchmen there looking out for God's king to come back? Well, in the back of their mind, they've been told that God's king's coming back. But they're pretty discouraged, pretty despondent. The watchmen are probably just sitting on their backsides, not really watching for anything. But what does Isaiah do? He says to the God's people who are discouraged, just look. Because back in Jerusalem, your watchmen will lift up their voices. They will shout for joy. They will see the Lord who will return to them. They're 900 miles away. But they're being told about something amazing that is going to take place in the future. And the beginning of this rescue happened in 538 BC. This pleasant looking chap is Cyrus he's the king of Persia that was the great superpower that took over from the Assyrians and the Babylonians and this guy said to God's people who were in a foreign land 900 miles away from home you can go back to Jerusalem now and if you think I'm making that up go down to the British Museum and you'll see there the Cyrus cylinder and inscribed on this Cyrus cylinder is an inscription of that edict from this king saying to God's people you can go back home now you can go and see it with your own eyes Isaiah is speaking and he's looking forward to an amazing day of celebration. Do you see that celebration, verse 9? Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people and he has redeemed Israel. What's puzzling about those words? Let me read them slowly. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. What's odd about that? brilliant it hasn't yet happened it's not yet 538 bc and god's people haven't yet gone back to to jerusalem and god's ultimate king jesus hasn't even been born yet into the into the world so how come it says here they have been redeemed it's because in the hebrew language sometimes things that are so so certain are put in the past tense before they've even happened to convey the sense they will happen because god says that it will happen so what is god saying to his people who are desperate and broken He's saying, wake up, you're infinitely precious to me, and I'm coming to rescue you. Don't you think we live in a world that needs to wake up? A world that is just getting busier and busier and busier. And to stop us having to really think about anything, we just get busier and busier and busier. But we need to wake up. Um, I used to teach up at a school in the Midlands. It was a boarding school. And if you were on duty in the morning, you had 50 boys in this big house that you had to wake up. Uh, where you go around about 7 o'clock in the morning and you knock on the doors very loud and you'd walk down the corridors doing this quite a few times. Then you'd reverse and come back. Of course, no one's got up. So you fling open the door and you switch on the light and you carry on and switch on all the lights. And of course, most people have their beds primed next to a light switch. As soon as you put it on, what do they do? So what do you do the third time you come back? You come back with your big super soaker. That got them up every single time. Wake up. The teenagers at the school needed to wake up. And sometimes they needed something very forceful, like water in the face, to get them out of bed. 
What would it take for you and I to wake up this Christmas? What would it take for the people busy, busy down at Waitrose to wake up this Christmas because spiritually speaking, they're asleep? They don't know the king whom Christmas is all about. Of course, they know about him. It's Christmas. Christmas, they know Jesus Christ, but do they know him in a personal way? What would it take? Well, this is the Christmas message verse 9 we saw there burst into songs of joy together you ruins of Jerusalem for the Lord has comforted his people he's redeemed Jerusalem and that is speaking both to God's people then but it's also speaking to us here in Long Crendon today it's as if God is saying there is a way to know lasting joy together despite the brokenness of our world because God brings comfort to a hurting world by sending Jesus that first Christmas to rescue his people we're just going to watch a short little video clip. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, we can rightly so spend a lot of time with medicine thinking about a really important physical heart condition. And there'll be people here who've had heart attacks. There'll be people here who sadly lost people to heart attacks. We spend a lot of time, and rightly so, considering really big medical illnesses that affect our heart. But do we give the same time and attention to think about the state of our spiritual hearts? I wonder... Well, how will God intervene to address the heart of this problem? Let me tell I'm you. really sorry, Mark, but I think... I mean, how much longer do we have to listen to this drivel? I'm sure I'm not the only person thinking that. I mean, honestly, I come in week in, week out, and all I... Honestly, I'm, not only do I have to listen to you, I mean, you're not even a very good speaker, but I have to, <laughs> I have to look at you as well. I mean, for goodness sake. Oh. Just shut up. (laughs) See, when John insults me, because I'm proud, I just want to respond with emotion. I want to roll up my sleeves. I want to go over there. I want to punch him on the nose, because he's saying stuff about me I don't like. But what about God? How does he respond when we treat him Not by necessarily insulting him verbally like that, but insulting him in the way that we just ignore him. We go about life our own way. Well, notice what the passage says. Verse 10. How does God intervene to address the heart of the problem? We read that he rolls up his sleeves to get dirty. See, God is not a God who folds his arms in indifference when we ignore him. And I'm not the sort of guy who would fold my hands in indifference when someone stands up and insults me. You want to roll up your sleeves. You want to respond. Amazingly, God didn't just fold his hands with indifference when his people were off in exile. Oh, well, I've given them chance after chance. You can read about it in the Bible. I've just given up on them. Never mind. And he doesn't do this with you and me either. Even if we persist in ignoring him. He never folds his arms like this with indifference because he doesn't care. Instead, what do we read? Verse 10, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm. In the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. That little phrase there, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm, is really a display of his saving power. It could literally be translated, um, he will roll up his sleeves. That's what God promises to do. He promises to roll up his spiritual sleeves to actually respond to a world that just ignores him. But interestingly, it's not in a fit of rage like it could have been if I'd gone over and punched John Lilly on the nose because he insulted me. 
It's not an emotional response. It's a response that's very measured. It's a response that's a function of his justice, a function of his love. God never folds his arms in indifference. Don't care. If you want to ignore me, fine. He rolls up his sleeves and he says, I'm going to do something about it because what am I passionate about? It's there on the wall. People. What do I want to say to people? I love you. And who do I want to hear that message? Absolutely everybody. How does God intervene with the problem? Well, first of all, he rolls up his sleeves. Secondly, he calls out to the people he loves. You see there, verse 11, depart, depart. It's uh, what are called imperatives. They're commands. It comes with a force. Depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. He's saying to God's people, don't associate anymore with the godless world that ignores me. Don't live in sin anymore. Instead, come out from it and be pure. You who carry the articles of the Lord's house. He's saying, leave behind your broken lives. Leave behind the spiritual adultery of your heart that just ignores God, that does things your own way, and come back to the God who loves you. What God is saying is, wake up. You're infinitely precious to me, and I've come to rescue you. So here's a question for you to consider. If you're a Christian and you know and love the Lord Jesus and could speak of him like the three young people did earlier in the service, I wonder how urgent is your witness this Christmas? Are you a passionate person? Passion can display in two ways. There can be the kind of passion perhaps of youth, and some are like that. There can also be the passion of quiet prayer in a home that nobody sees, but it's consistent and it's faithful. Sometimes it's a bit of both. But as you wake tomorrow morning on Christmas Eve, how you choose to spend the day with all the fun I hope you have and all the preparations that need to be done, how you spend tomorrow will tell you what you're most passionate about in life. It just will. And if our lives here in the church are just like everybody else's lives and we're all rushing to Waitrose and that's the focus of our day, it tells us what we're most passionate about. Christmas dinner. I love Christmas dinner, but I'm not passionate about it like I'm passionate about Jesus. And for someone, if you're here and you don't yet know Jesus, if you don't know that God really loves you and you haven't ever responded to that love, maybe this Christmas, ask yourself, does that bother you that you've never responded to the most perfect love that exists from the most perfect God who exists? Because not only does God want to roll up his sleeves to get his hands dirty this Christmas, entering into time and space in the person of Jesus, but he also wants to call out to the people he loves, wake up. Come back to me. But then wonderfully, notice how it finishes, verse 12. God also intervenes by leading his people to safety. And we're going to learn more about this on next Sunday, the Sunday the 30th, as we think about the work of the king. But do you notice something interesting, verse 12? But you will not leave in haste or go in flight. How do you think God's people left Jerusalem when they were exiled? In haste, in flight, because they were grabbed around the neck, they were chained and they were carted off. There was a siege, there was battle, there was bloodshed. They would have rushed off very quickly and very violently. But notice how God says this time they will come back. For the Lord God will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. They were rushed off into captivity, but they came back steadily and safe. Why? Because the presence of God who was with them protected them. Well, how exactly did this happen? We're going to return to this, as I said, on Christmas morning and on Sunday the 30th. But we just get a bit of a clue 
as to how God is going to rescue us from our spiritual adultery, the way that we just live for good things, but ignore the giver of good things. Verse 13, here's the little clue. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That phrase, raised and lifted up, comes four times in the book of Isaiah, and every time it's a reference to God himself. little clue as to who this servant is that Isaiah speaks of. And then we learn a bit more about this servant. Verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Are you beginning to see who this servant-like figure is? I hope so. This is a prophecy about the promised king of God who's coming into the world. But the most amazing thing is this prophecy is spoken 700 years before he even comes. But it's spoken of as if he's already here because it's utterly certain. And that little mini rescue, 538 BC, when Cyrus says to God's people, you can come back to Jerusalem now, and they rebuild the city under the watchful eye of Ezra and Nehemiah, that little rescue is just a picture of the great rescue to come. Not coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild that city, but coming back to the living God to rebuild the people of God, his church. And notice what this king will do when he comes, verse 15. He will sprinkle many nations. The kings will shut their mouths because of him. The reference there to sprinkling, I hope you are seeing, is a reference to being forgiven. It's a reference to being restored. Because not only does God say, what am I passionate about as people? And what's the message I want to convey? That I love you? And who do I want to hear that? message of forgiveness where God says, come to me just as you are, with all your brokenness, with all your weakness, and come to me because I love you. And so as we continue to prepare for Christmas, just look at that figure on the cross. That baby born on Christmas morning, who grew up to be a man, and 30 years later, this happened to him. Crucified. He died a humiliating death. And when you first look at that, perhaps when the world looks at that, maybe it's just a sad story of a great moral teacher who happened to get on the wrong side of the Romans. Pretty sad, kind of bad luck. Quite a few other people were crucified just like him. Well, maybe this Christmas, Christmas isn't about Christ at all. It's just totally insignificant. Who kind of cares what happened all those years ago? And yet, look at the glory of verse 15 as we finish. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. In the past, they couldn't see. In the past, they couldn't hear. But what does God do when his spirit gets hold of a person's heart? He opens their eyes so they can see who he is. He unblocks their deaf ears so they can hear who he is. And suddenly, that baby born in a manger 2,000 years ago, becomes utterly significant because it changes absolutely everything. In a moment, we're going to close our service, not by singing, but listening to a song sung. And it's a video song, so there are some lyrics and some pictures just to help us to capture it. But I want you to notice in the song a particular line, because as you look at the face of Jesus on the cross... If I zoom in on it, Jesus is looking very carefully. The question for you to think about is, when he was looking, who do you think he was thinking about? 
Just ponder that as we watch this video to close our service together, and then we'll enjoy some refreshments afterwards. Have a really blessed Christmas.